To bring to your remembrance, we began a study in the Psalms of Ascents. Those are the 15 Psalms spanning from Psalm 120 to 134. Last time we were in Psalm 120, we had an introduction followed by a sermon. And this week, we're going to build upon what we laid last time. The topic for today's sermon is learning trust in the school of Christ. Last week we learned to trust while in exile. This week we will learn to trust while in trial. Those two have much in common. But we're going to learn these things by Christ's example today. The outline, if you're keeping notes, is going to be three in part, a Trinitarian outline. Part one, son. Part two, spirit. Part three, father. Easy enough. Son is verses one and two. Spirit is verses three and four. Father is verses five through eight. Now with your Bibles open to Psalm 121, let's read the word of God together. Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall, come my, where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray and ask for our Lord's help this morning. Father, we do ask that you would give us your help. You are indeed our keeper. And we ask that you would guard our minds this morning, guard my tongue as we set forth on unpacking what you have prepared for us in Psalm 121 this morning. Help us to learn to trust in the school of Christ. We ask these things in his precious name, and we all say, amen. Amen. Well, one of the teachings that we'll be offering in the Who We Are series, which Pastor Perkins discussed uh, will be beginning this evening is actually going to be one of our last topics that we preach Christ from all of Scripture. I think that's going to be held on November 20th, if I read the calendar correctly. That's going to be our last who we are uh, teaching that we're going to offer. And today's sermon, I believe, will certainly evidence this mark of identity here at Covenant Baptist Church, Santa Clarita. As Pastor Nate taught last week on Ephesians 5, concerning speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, he did mention something in passing that I want to spend some time with you this morning. He mentioned that when studying the psalms, many have recognized a pattern that reveals different voices or different speakers within the psalms, and that many have undertook the task to discern and identify just who the speakers are in the Psalms. Now, in Psalm 120, we didn't quite discuss this because I didn't see it evidenced in that Psalm, that there were multiple speakers, but I do think we see it in this Psalm. I think we can clearly see different speakers, different voices. Now, granted, it's all the voice of God, amen? And there was one human author, amen? But there's something in the text that reveals a dialogue of sorts. And we see this all through the Psalms. And this is why many theologians have recognized this pattern. I want you to listen to someone we brought up last time, Augustine, or Augustine, a pillar of the early church who set the course of biblical interpretation for a millennia. Listen to one of his comments on Psalm 31. Augustine says, let us listen now to something our Lord said on the cross. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He's quoting Luke chapter 23. When we hear those words 
of his in the gospel and recognize them as part of this psalm. Did you notice that that was a quotation from Psalm 31 when Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit? Augustine is saying, when we hear our Lord say those words in the gospel, we should not doubt that here in the psalm, Psalm 31, it is Christ himself who is speaking. The gospel makes it clear. He had good reasons for making the words of the psalm his own. For he wanted to teach you that in the psalm, he is speaking. Look for him in it. That's Augustine, recognizing that in the psalms, we don't just have the human author. And granted, we do have the divine author, who we would often say is the Holy Spirit, who inspired all of Scripture. But Augustine is saying, look, in the Gospels, Christ puts this psalm on his lips, not because he's just reciting it, but to call your attention, brothers and sisters, to the fact that it's him in Psalm 23 speaking those words. Fascinating. Now today with Psalm 121, we're treated with another psalm with multiple speakers and voices. When Augustine unfolded Psalm 31, he recognized the voice of Christ in the words. He said, in other words, make no doubt, Christ himself is speaking. And then he encourages the reader to look for him in it. I would like to invite you this morning to look for Christ with me in Psalm 121. Amen? Now, why is this important? Well, first we want to handle the text rightly. We want, to, we want to unpack what is in the text. Secondly, we also want to worship more fully. When we understand better what is rightly in the text, we can worship more fully, can we not? When we see a clear picture of our Lord, when we understand more clearly what he's teaching us, we can worship more fully. Now, how is this done? How do we do that? How do we handle the text rightly? How do we worship more fully by reading the text rightly? Again, this is what's going to be the topic of our last Who We Are series, preaching Christ from all of Scripture. This is how it's done, brothers and sisters. It is done by finding that pearl of great price. It's done by finding that treasure hidden in the field. He who is more desirous than silver or gold it's done by finding our Lord Jesus Christ in the text of Scripture. One author comments that there is a way of interpreting the Old Testament that brings the spiritually receptive reader into a direct relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ, who is not only in the text, but also speaks in and through it. That's the point. When we read our Bibles, we ought to look for Christ. Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39, when he was rebuking the teachers of Israel? He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they, the scriptures, that testify about me. Jesus is showing the teachers of Israel, the scriptures are about me, and you're rejecting me. Or similarly, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's not as if all that Paul talked about was the cross. It's that when Paul unfolded the scriptures, he showed them Christ. Now where would Paul have learned to do that? Where would the apostles have learned to do that? Think, think through this with me. Where did they learn to do that? Did they learn it from the religious leaders in Israel? No. They learned it from Jesus. Jesus taught them how to read their Bibles, how to read their Old Testament. And that's what we're going to do today, is we're going to follow in their footsteps and read Psalm 121 in the way that our Lord taught us to read the Old Testament. So, when we listen to, to Augustine's words, and he says, the Lord Jesus is speaking in the text, it's his voice. When we set about the task of identifying who these voices are in the text, there's a fancy word for it, which I want to give to you. You can write it down, but this is going to serve as a basis for 
for our study in the Psalms of Ascents as we continue through these next uh, 13 Psalms. It's called prosopological exegesis. Big word. Prosopological exegesis. This is likely to be a term that is new to many. Even students of scripture who have been blessed with taking courses on hermeneutics may have not heard the term prosopological exegesis. This is a feature of interpretation, especially in the Psalms, sadly that has been neglected, but is now being recovered. One thing is certain, and the quote from Augustine displayed it, I believe, that this is not new, but a very old way of reading the scriptures and the Psalms. In fact, it's an ancient way. It's not a modern interpretive idea, but a pre-modern interpretive method, an ancient one. So again, what is prospological exegesis? Well, the answer simply is it's an interpretive technique where the interpreter seeks to overcome a real or perceived ambiguity regarding the identity of the speakers in a text. Again, we say it's a real or perceived ambiguity. When you read Psalm 121 with me at the beginning of this sermon, you may have not have noticed, oh, there's different speakers. There's, there's, the vocabulary itself identifies it plainly, but it may, be, it may have been ambiguous. So the task of prospological exegesis is recognizing these distinctions and trying to handle, again, the text rightly so that you can worship more and feed on Christ more. I would argue, as others have, that this method of identifying which person is speaking in the Psalms was actually learned by the apostles from Jesus Christ, taught to the early church, and practiced by the church until it fell out of favor. How did Augustine know to interpret the Psalms this way? I don't think he invented it. Augustine is but one example but you may be thinking, hold on, that's Augustine. And we're talking about hermeneutics classes. And are we not talking about some theoretical idea? Show me an apostle that did this. Well, if you're able, please turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I don't want to spend much time here. This is just laying the foundation Again, this will serve us in the Psalms that follow in our series. Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read a lengthy excerpt here. Starting in verse 10. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciences of sin. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The author of Hebrews I believe is saying those sacrifices in the Old Covenant were just pictures. They were just types. They were just shadows. They weren't the real thing. They were pointing to something better. What were they pointing to, brothers and sisters? They are pointing to Christ. Listen to verse 5, though, where the writer says, Therefore, when he comes into the world, who's he? Who came into the world? Jesus Christ. When he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, to do your will, O God. Pause. One of the reasons I like the New American Standard Bible, again, is the fact that it puts in all caps, Old Testament quotations. If you're reading in the NASB, you're seeing that is all in caps. That means Old Testament reference. What is it? Psalm 40. Psalm 40. Continues. 
After saying above, the writer of Hebrews says, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Verse 9. Then he said, quote again, Behold, I have come to do your will. Another psalm quotation. Now, commentary with the author of Hebrews. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. That's an important, an important explanation. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Now here's my question to you. Who's speaking in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 5? Where it says, therefore when he comes into the world. Well clearly it's the author of the book of Hebrews. He is giving that commentary note when he comes into the world. But who's speaking in verses 6 through 7? It's the he that the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying spoke those words. Now who is the he? Who spoke the words of Psalm 40 according to the writer of Hebrews? Some would say it's David, who many believe wrote the psalm. Again, the human author, right? But Paul says that the he, in verse 5, does away with the sacrificial system. And further explains that it involves our sanctification through the offering of the physical body of Jesus Christ. David neither abolished the sacrificial system, nor sanctified us through the offering of his body, did he? So who's the he? That said, Psalm 40, according to the book of Hebrews. Who is speaking in the psalm according to the writer of Hebrews? Jesus Christ. Prosopological exegesis. Apostolic. Done by the apostles. Learned from Jesus. Passed on to the early church. Sadly, falling out of practice. How do you want to interpret your Bibles? Like an apostle. Why? Because they interpreted it like our Lord Jesus. Jesus was in the business of teaching scripture. He was a teacher. He was a rabbi. He taught hermeneutics classes. And all of the battles he had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or I should say at least most of them, were about how to interpret the Old Testament. They were hermeneutical battles in the Gospels. So with that as the backdrop, hoping to have justified the practice of prosopological exegesis to you, let's now look at Psalm 121. Heading number one, the Son. The Son. Our Lord, brothers and sisters, learned obedience from the things that he suffered. Now, that may sound shocking to you. Hold on a second. The son learned something? Did he? You may be saying, I thought he was God. Yes, indeed. He was truly God, but he was also truly man. And in his humanity, he learned. He grew. And understand this. He learned obedience from the things he suffered. The son who is equal with the father, not subordinate to him in any way, in and of his divine nature, learned obedience in his human nature. Read the psalm with me. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, as one commentator rightly says, the matter of this psalm is sufficient to show that the psalmist was conflicting with, conflicted with great difficulties and oppositions and looking for help, as men in such cases used to do, and then turning his eyes to God and his providence and encouraging himself by God's promises made to his people. That is a general way to read this psalm. The saint is in trial the saint is in despair. He's asking, who is going to help me? Where is my help going to come from? And he recognizes my help comes from the Lord 
who made heaven and earth. Now that has application to each and every one of us here today because we all have trials. We all have suffering. And we all have the same Lord, Lord willing, who meets us in these trials, who brings them about for his own glory and our own good. Therefore, we ought to greet them with joy, as James would say in his letter. But the point is this. Even though there's application, and this can be read and sung and certainly was by the saints as they made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Remember we talked about what's the context of these Psalms of Ascents? Going to Jerusalem, going up to the holy city. They would have been met with mountainous ranges on their journey. Jerusalem was a city of mountains. Mount Zion is where the holy hill was. And so there's a context in which the pilgrim, the saint, who is the Old Testament saint going to Jerusalem, could sing these songs, asking for protection as they pass through the mountainous terrain leading to Jerusalem, where there would be robbers and wild animals, and sing this psalm maybe as they're shaking in fear at night. I'll lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where shall my help come from? Oh, it has impact, doesn't it, to think of you being in that situation. But who is speaking? Who is speaking in this psalm? I believe it's the sun. Lifting up your eyes means to pray. I will lift up my eyes. I will pray to the mountains. Not literally praying to the mountains as in an idolatrous act. But rather, there's a mountain in context here. There's mountains in context. Most commentators agree these mountains are the mountainous ranges of Jerusalem. What or where are these mountains? One commentator says the mountains here are either Zion or Moriah, which are called the holy mountains. Again, if we go to other psalms, it unpacks it for us. Psalm 87 his foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. So this city of God is the holy mountains. Psalm 87.1 in the King James says, His foundation in the holy mountains. The ESV will say in Psalm 87, on the holy mount stands the city he founded. So again, here we have this understanding of this city of God, Zion, identified with mountains. Psalm 125, verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. It even uses a metaphor to comfort you, brothers and sisters. Just as mountains surrounded the city of God, God surrounds you like that. You who are his true temple. Surrounded the type, the temple of physical bricks in the old. He surrounds us like that. But I want to dig deeper. If we're saying that this mountain refers to Mount Zion or even Moriah, the holy mountains of Jerusalem, I want to go all the way back to where we, where we hear about Mount Moriah in the Old Testament. Because so I think it will be helpful for us. Turn to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. I'm going to read some lengthy passages. I'm not going to do this the whole sermon, so I hope it's not too fatiguing. But I think it's going to help us. Chapter 22 in Genesis. Even our children know this story well, no doubt. They might say to themselves, I never heard of Mount Moriah. They'll remember when we start reading this passage. Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, 
which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, and he took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God has told him. On the third day, interesting, alarm bell should be going off. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes. What does that mean? He's praying and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Think about that. Abraham knows what he's going to do. What does he tell his men? We will return to you. Hold on a second, Abraham. You know that you're going to take the life of your son. God has told you to do so. Yes, I know, Abraham would say. But God has made promises to me that through my line, through Isaac, there will come a, a blessing. God may take his life. But I also know God will keep his promise. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, Jesus would say. Think about that. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood... But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Enough to make you cry. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord, we've talked about him, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. A substitute. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is to this day, listen, in the mount, the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Now connect the dots with me. Mount Zion, this mountainous range in Jerusalem. Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. There's a connection there. Here in Genesis, we learn of a mountain and a sacrifice. The mountain is Zion in ancient Israel. And Moriah, the holy mountains, that mountainous encirclement of the holy city. And the sacrifice in Genesis 22, it's of Isaac, who is a type of Christ. If you don't see Christ in that story, you're not understanding typology. It's so clear from Isaac carrying the wood himself up the hill to laying himself on the altar, the father Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac, the father of the Jews, Abraham, Isaac, the type of Christ. But we also learn of a promised seed. Let's keep reading in verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heavens and as of the sands which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. I want to ask the question, who is the promised seed 
in Genesis 22. Just as when we read the third day and alarm bells were going off, there's certain words that pop up in the text that should set off alarm bells for us. And one of them is the word seed, your seed. Where is the first place we heard of a seed? It's in Genesis chapter 3.15, known as the first gospel in all of scripture, where Adam and Eve have sinned in the garden. And God is pronouncing the curse on the man, on the woman, on the serpent. But then he gives a promise. And it's the gospel, brothers and sisters. It's how our first parents were saved, by believing this promise. And what was it? It's this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now one thing that I want you to recognize is that we have the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And who is the he that shall bruise the seed of the serpent on the head? Or bruise the serpent on the head? It's Jesus Christ. He is the, as some have said, the skull-crushing seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head. And it's said that he shall crush his head, but the seed of the serpent will bruise him on the heel. A deadly blow to the head by he who is the seed of the woman. A temporary wound by the seed of the serpent on the one who comes from her. We notice interesting language in Genesis 3.15 where it talks about seed, then goes to the singular. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him, singular, on the heel, identifying one person. Not the Jews, not the elect specifically, but the elect in him, the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And let me tell you this, this is one place I'm not thankful for the NASB. And if you're into marking up your Bibles, here's a good place to do it. In Genesis chapter 15, if you flip back, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 22, if you flip back to verse 17, where it says, And your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. Grammatically, I believe it's more accurate, and some translations actually put it this way. It's this. Your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. So if you want, I would encourage you to circle the word there, if you have an NASB, and write the word his. Because that is a singular promise to a singular seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. Which goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15, where it's the singular he that shall bruise the head of the serpent. We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you know that? How do you know that? Because the apostles taught me and taught you. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but to one, and to your seed. That is Jesus Christ. That's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is interpreting for us Genesis. So when you circle that word there and write his, that is an apostolic, not only apostolic teaching, but, but is what I believe is actually in the text itself. So, let's turn from the shadow to the substance. We've seen Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. We've seen the pictures. We've seen Isaac. We've seen the wood on his back. We've seen his father taking his only son up on this mountaintop to slay him. That which Abraham was asked to do, God does himself. God stopped Abraham's hand. Listen to me. Nobody stopped God's hand. He was pleased to crush his son. Turn to John chapter 19. He was not pleased to crush his son because of his love for his son, but because of his hatred of sin. 
What did it cost for our sins to be taken away? The blood of the only begotten Son of God. Nothing short of an eternal sacrifice. For an eternal wage of sin is what we owe. From the shadow to the substance, from the type to the anti-type, from the illustration to the reality, where we learn of the true mountain, the true sacrifice, and the true seed, John 19. Last lengthy portion, bear with me. Starting in verse 1. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! And give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the Precatorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. So they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to be crucified. Listen. They took Jesus, therefore. He went out, bearing his own cross, bearing that wood, typified in Isaac taking that wood to the place called the place of the skull. Golgotha is what it's called in Hebrew. In Latin, it's called Calvary. Calvary in Latin means skull. What do we call it? Mount Calvary. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. The city that is a mountainous circle, Mount Moriah, Mount Zion. Why is this important? Because if this is the voice of Jesus in Psalm 121, and it has application in many different spheres, could this not have been a psalm on his lips as he is carrying the cross? I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. 
As the writer in Hebrews said in chapter 5, in the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Now, Augustine didn't just talk about prospological exegesis. He also talked about something called totus Christus in the Latin, which means the total Christ, head and body. There are things in the Psalms that are spoken of that may not seem appropriate to attribute to the Son, but yet would be appropriate to attribute to us. And so there are times in the Psalms where Christ is being spoken of, not as his, himself particularly, but his body particularly. And so as we read this psalm from verses 1 and 2, and we see it possibly on the lips of our Lord, it still has application to us. Because we are part of Christ's body. And although he walked the road up that mountain, bearing that cross, we are walking a road. We are called to take up our own crosses in our own wilderness, up the own, our own mountain, leading to Zion, that eternal dwelling place of God. But our Lord... Jesus Christ's voice being on display in verses 1 and 2, I would offer there's a change in character as we get to verse 3. The, it goes from the voice of Christ to the voice of the Spirit. Read with me chapter 3. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Very well could be Christ in the first person speaking in, in verses 1 and 2. And now the Spirit, our Lord, was cared for by the voice of the Comforter. The Holy Spirit as Comforter now encourages Christ and his body, us, with the following words. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Holy Spirit as comforter encourages Christ and his body because of God's decree, because of God's ontology, who he is in and of himself, and because of God's covenant. Because of God's decree, he will not allow your foot to slip. Because of God's ontology, who he is, he who keeps you will neither slumber nor sleep. And because of God's covenant, behold, he who keeps Israel. The Holy Spirit reminds the whole Christ of God's decree. Remember the words in Deuteronomy 32 that Jonathan Edwards preached on? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. On that one verse, partial verse from Deuteronomy 32, 35. In due time their foot will slip. Is what is spoken of of the wicked. And we talked about how that slipping of your foot means destruction. And all those who are apart from Christ, in due time, their foot will slip. God offers us encouragement because of his decree of those who he has called in election. He will not allow your foot to slip. Because of his decree, brothers and sisters. You are kept safe, not because of your good works. You are kept safe because God keeps you safe. Surely our Lord knew Psalm 119, 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And if this psalm says he will not allow my foot to slip and his word is settled in heaven forever, he will not allow your foot to slip. Take courage. Psalm 92.12, the righteous will flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Even as he's carrying the cross up that mountain, 
this was true. How am I flourishing like a palm tree? How am I growing like a cedar in Lebanon? My bones are out of joint. My tongue cleaves to the roof of my mouth. I'm in anguish. I'm thirsty. And yet I'm flourishing like a palm tree? Oh, yes. Jesus knew Psalm 23 well, I'm sure, as we all do here this morning. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Our Lord surely did not think this psalm is true, except for this point here where I'm carrying this cross up this mountain. May we not think that this psalm is not true for us as we're carrying our own cross. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow you, brothers and sisters, all the days of your life. And you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever if he is keeping you according to his decree. But it's not just because of God's decree that we get comfort. It's because of knowing God's ontology. The Holy Spirit reminds the whole Christ, body and head, of God's ontology, who he is. He does not slumber or sleep. And furthermore, he reminds the, Holy, the Holy Spirit reminds the whole Christ of God's covenant. Not just because of his decree, not just because of who he is, but because of the promises that he has made to you. He has made promises in this psalm to you if you belong to him. And so just as we had the Son speaking in verses 1 and 2, and the Spirit speaking in verses 3 and 4, to complete our Trinitarian pattern, the Father in verses 5 through 8, our Lord was always in the care of the Father during his earthly ministry. Read with me. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So many Old Testament references coalesce in this section Deuteronomy 28, verse 6, Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Again, to think of these words as encouragement in times of trial, possibly even the ascending the mountain to the cross. The promise made in Numbers 27, 17 rings true. The Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. The scriptures were the word of God for all who believe and are the word of God for all who believe. But particularly they are the words of Christ. And think about Christ reading the Psalms and learning the Psalms as a child and then applying the Psalms throughout his life in his humanity. Learning Growing his divine mission from heaven. Reading the Psalms that speak more vividly about the crucifixion than even the Gospels. And recognizing, again, according to his flesh, this is about me and what I will have to endure. And coming to a verse like this, the Lord is your keeper. 
The Lord is the shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. In the light of our Savior's sufferings, he could say, it is well with my soul. Our Lord, in his humanity, had a human soul, a created soul. We talked about that in the local descent of Christ from Pastor Perkins' sermons in Ephesians. Christ could say, it is well with my soul, while he was carrying the cross up Mount Zion. Can you say that? Can you say it is well with my soul in the light of your sufferings, in the light of your trials? God says the Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. Is this psalm encouraging to you as it encouraged Christ? Do you hear the voice of the shepherd in Psalm 121? Or do you not hear it? Can you say in the light of your trials, it is well with my soul, from this time forth and forevermore? If you read this psalm in faith, you can, brothers and sisters. If you read this psalm in faith, you can, children who gather with us. So we end where we began. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. For I am determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now with Christ's sufferings in view, as he ascended the holy mountain and subsequent glory which followed, Listen again to the voice of Christ, the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, and the promise of the Father in Psalm 121. Psalm 121, a psalm of ascents. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word from Psalm 121. We thank you for sending your only begotten son into the world to save sinners like us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your obedience that you learned as you suffered for us. Holy Spirit, we thank you for applying the riches of Christ's reward to our account by grace alone through faith alone praise be to god in jesus name we pray and give thanks amen